2: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I'm filling in today for Kim Thiebeldo. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community. We are one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and by a telephone helpline at 888-793-9355. And I will repeat that number for you later in the show. Um, Sometimes in unfortunate situations, people will say, oh, you must have bad luck or don't worry, this could have happened to anyone But for some people diagnosed with cancer, and certainly in this case, the cancer is caused by genetic mutations that happen as a part of the family or over the course of time. Um, Others facing a cancer diagnosis, especially those with a family history, this is not just bad luck or a coincidence. As a matter of fact, about 10% of all cancers are caused by an inherited genetic mutation. On today's show, we're talking to two truly extraordinary women who are personal friends of mine, I feel very blessed to be able to say that, who both in a time before discovery of the BRCA genes had a suspicion about the impact of cancer on their family and later um, experienced this reality firsthand. Through their own journeys with cancer and now through their work, both of these women have shed a light on hereditary cancer and have really helped to educate others who are also at risk for hereditary cancer. Our first guest today is Annie Parker. Annie is the inspiration behind the 2013 film Decoding Annie Parker, starring Samantha Morton and Aaron Paul, and most recently, the book Annie Parker Decoded, written by Annie herself and published just in September of this year. Annie's journey with cancer began as a teenager when she lost her mother to breast cancer and then later with the loss of a sister. Annie was also diagnosed with breast cancer herself and I'm going to let her share her story um in just um, um a moment. So thank you so much for being here with us Annie.
0: Thank you for having me Linda.
2: Also joining us today is Lily Shockney, who is a registered nurse at Johns Hopkins. You've been there since 1983, and Lily, you have so many titles there, Um, Distinguished Service Associate Professor of the Breast Center and Administrative Director of the Avon Foundation Breast Center at Johns Hopkins. Um, You are a published author. You are nationally recognized um, as a speaker on the subject of breast cancer, survivorship, navigation, a number of other uh, topic ex- topics um, that you're an expert uh, leading. Um, at the Breast Center, you are responsible for the quality of care programs. You're responsible for the patient education programs, the survivor volunteer team, the patient advocate and community outreach, both locally, regionally, and nationally. I know that you have amazing retreats for um, people with, with cancer and their families, and um, you yourself are a breast cancer survivor. So thank you also for joining us today, Lily.
3: Happy to do so.
2: So, Annie, um, I'm going to start with you, and I gave away a little bit of uh, of your story, but could you just take some time for our listeners and
0: um, walk through your journey? I'd be happy to. Um, in 1965, when I was 14 years old, I lost my mother to breast cancer. And actually, it was her secondary cancer. Breast cancer was her initial site, but she actually passed away from what was known as a, an unknown primary, which was sitting behind her heart. And this was the first introduction that I actually had to any form of cancer. Uh, I grew up in the city of Toronto in a middle-class family. We were a happy, loving family. And then one day, oddly enough, actually, on my mom and dad's wedding anniversary, we were all sitting around the breakfast table, uh, pestering my dad, asking him what he was going to get for my mother for that anniversary day. And then when my mom left the table, we heard a thud from the upper uh, level of our our home. And uh, my mother basically hit the floor and was taken away in an ambulance. And I never got to see my mother again. The first conversation I heard around cancer was when my dad and my sister and I overheard them speaking about this secondary cancer that my mom had passed from and that she actually had been diagnosed with breast cancer when she was carrying me back in 1951. So as soon as I heard the word cancer and heard about this disease and this is what had taken my mother away from me at a very early age, um, I just wondered right from then what what this cancer was. We had a few really good years and then in 1978 my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, at that point again it Cancer, the word "cancer" reared its ugly head. And uh, two years later, I lost my sister to what was, I thought, bowel cancer, but only found out after doing the genetic uh, mapping, that they really felt that it was uh, fourth stage ovarian cancer that uh, had taken my sister. So in uh, a few years later, in 1980, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at a very early age of 29 years old, and I just thought at that time that this couldn't be a coincidence, that all these women in my family weren't passing away from cancer that was just, bad luck, that there had to be something in our DNA that was exposing us to this disease. And, um, you know, we found out later, of course, through Dr. King, that this was actually the case. 1988, I was diagnosed with third stage ovarian cancer. And then in 2005, I was diagnosed with what was known as an unknown primary, but not behind my heart. It was behind my liver.
2: Thank you for sharing that with us, um, Lily. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure.
3: I uh, I come from a a family that has virtually no cardiac history whatsoever on either side, which is incredibly unusual. And instead, what people in my family have died from has been cancer. So my dad died a few months ago, actually, uh, from his metastatic prostate cancer. My mother was diagnosed with uterine cancer when she was in her late thirties. Uh, my grandparents uh, have also passed away uh, younger than we anticipated uh, from their cancers too. I was initially diagnosed in my thirties with breast cancer and it was actually found accidentally or perhaps I should say coincidentally. I had a lump in my right breast which prompted me to see my GYN. And Get referred for diagnostic imaging. That lump ended up being a cyst, which they put a needle in, aspirated it, it was gone. But they said, Now that you're between the age of 35 and 40, let's go ahead and do a baseline mammogram of your other breast while you're here. And there they found something that looked suspicious, which when all was said and done did end up uh, being cancer. I had multicentric disease, so more than one tumor in the breast occupying multiple. Quadrants, so I needed to undergo a modified radical mastectomy because this also predated sentinel node biopsy, and that was 22 and a half years ago. I was then diagnosed again uh, at the age of 40 in my uh, remaining what I thought was healthy breast and also had multiple tumors um, in it, which is unusual, uh, and under, underwent again another modified radical mastectomy. Um, I did not uh, have reconstruction done uh, at either of those surgeries due to some other medical problems that I had and didn't become a candidate for reconstruction until 10 years after my second mastectomy. And when I became a candidate, I uh, struggled with that decision, trying to decide, do I want to do this now? Do I not? I'm an advocate here for patients to have reconstruction, but there was no advocate for me which was really kind of ironic. But I did end up having bilateral deep flap reconstruction done, which I think is one of the best decisions I've ever made for myself uh, personally. My daughter was 12 when I was diagnosed the first time. At the age of 15 for her was the year that the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes uh, became known and a way of testing for them at that time, a blood test, Uh, was a method of finding out if you, in fact, carried one or the other of those genes. I was very enthused that now there was a way to genetically uh, test people. And the doctors that were here at Johns Hopkins taking care of me, also where I work, um, had told me that they suspected strongly that I probably did have a gene, and when I sat down to talk to my daughter they say she was just 15 about this, uh, rather than her being enthused, she looked horrified. And she said, Mom, please don't do this test yet. Please let me be a teenager for a while longer. I've just gotten my breath. That was very good advice for me as her mother. I was not thinking in my mind about the ramifications that this may have for her. So I told her for her to let me know when she was ready to find out whether I had BRCA1 or BRCA2. And on her 21st birthday, she said to me, I would like to now know. I tested negative for BRCA1 and BRCA2. I've also tested negative for Cowden's. But they do think I probably have a gene that we may or may not yet have a way of testing for yet. And my daughter is aware of that. And of anyone uh, that I could describe, she's the healthiest person I've ever known in my life. She is so very well-disciplined in trying to live a very healthy lifestyle with her personal goal to reduce her risk. Uh, She began having breast imaging in her mid-20s. We take uh, my age, subtract 10, and if whatever that number is when it is below 40, that is the age in which we are to begin doing some type of um, screening surveillance on uh, daughters Um, of the first generation who had been diagnosed, which was me. And I am a a very strong uh, advocate for women getting uh, genetically tested, but I am incredibly specific about the importance of doing genetic counseling before testing. Um, as was in my case, even though I tested negative, as I say, they think I have a gene. And it's important that a patient understand that and understand what the ramifications of that can be.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And I'm just going to ask you, we've got just about a minute before break, but Lily, I just want to, and we'll focus on this a little bit later in the show, but the equation that you just gave 10 years earlier than the date when you were diagnosed, how does that factor into um, younger women who are diagnosed in their 20s and 30s?
3: Yes. So let's say it's someone who's 25. Yeah. Um, We are not going to begin doing imaging per se at 15, but we are going to start looking at around 18, Mm -hmm. uh, more than likely doing ultrasounds and having that teenager learn the correct techniques in doing uh, breast self-exams
2: great that's that's helpful Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer today's show is sponsored in part by celgene lily oncology and onyx we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we're back we will hear more from our guests
1: The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with
4: breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar. To streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer, help us reach our goal of one thousand new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt and enter the code Magnolia B, or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
2: We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Annie Parker and Lily Shockney are both with us here today. Each has walked us through some of the fascinating stories and details about their family history with um, cancer and really their own experience with uh, genetic counseling and genetic testing and and having a a BRCA positive uh, gene and and not having a BRCA gene. Um, I'd like to just sort of go a little bit deeper into the topic of the link between family genetics and cancer. And Annie, I want to start with you. And you told us about your history and your suspicion, um, when did you really start to suspect that there was um, a link? There were, at, the, at the time you were putting all of the, this together, there really wasn't any scientific knowledge. So when did you start to kind of put it together and, and suspect and walk us through the steps that you took to really raise the awareness?
0: Well you're right there there was nothing back then and um I believed in my gut in my stomach that there there was always a link especially after I heard from my sister that there was um, breast cancer with my mom after when she was carrying me, and she had chosen not to do anything about her her breast cancer until after I was born. And I was actually at that point raised by my grandmother and my aunt, who who would come to our house while my mom was undergoing again she had surgery and a full mastectomy, radical mastectomy. But then after that, she had to endure cobalt treatment. So um, my mom needed some help. With the kids, and I was the youngest in the family. So, um, ever since I overheard that conversation, I thought, gee, I wonder if this is something that could have been caught like a common cold. But then, after um, a few years passed, as I said, and, and after my sister was diagnosed in 1978. I really felt that I had to dig and delve a little further into um, what this cancer was all about. And we didn't have the social media back there then that we have today, so um, I would spend a lot of time researching, going to libraries, trying to find out if there was something connected but there was some reason that my sister developed breast cancer because my mother had breast cancer. And I knew that I didn't have the, the numbers behind my, excuse me, the letters behind my name. I wasn't a doctor. I was a teenager. But I became obsessed with researching to find out um, what could possibly be going on with our family because I wasn't putting it back to, down to bad luck. So I would say, you know, when my sister was diagnosed in 78, I just felt that I had to start this my obsession to find out uh, what was cancer, where did cancer come from, and uh, it, it took me a long time of research, and until I finally uh, found out about my cancer, that uh, there was actually something within my doctor's view to suggest that there was, was something going on. But again, Dr. King's um, discovery, I guess, of the BRCA1, BRCA2 gene mutation didn't come out until the 90s, but uh, she was researching way back in the 80s. And there was a little little clips and little things coming forward from my oncologist that there could be something, but nothing concrete to say that there was a family connection. Mm-hmm.
2: And can you, can you just speak a little bit to, um, to some of the things that you did? I know that you said you were researching and flow charting and, and that, but you, you actually had and studied some of the work of Dr. King.
0: Yes, I had, and and I'm in Canada, so um, a lot of these things weren't, uh, I wasn't privy to, but I, looking at some of the research books that I had was way over my head, but the name Dr. King did come up even back in the 80s, so I, I was hoping that somebody, whether it was Dr. King or, or another geneticist scientist, would would find some sort of genetic link within the family. And when I was discovered with breast cancer, it was almost like a eureka mold for me. Um, the doctor, I recall him saying, you know, this must be very upsetting to you and like it depicted in the movie, it was more like, wow, tell me something that I, I d- didn't already know because I really felt that someday I would end up getting breast cancer and I did at a very young age of 29 and my son was only at that time seven. Mm, scary. Lily, let's, let's switch over to you.
2: Um you know while you know now that you don't have a BRCA gene mutation I remember you talking about all of the members of your family especially the female members of your family who who had breast cancer and 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 if I remember right you were not a medical professional at the time when they were sort of going through through their experience so you know as you reflect back on that family history um can you just you know talk a little bit about um you know how we over the time have learned about different genes causing instances of cancer and how we've really put that picture together. Yes, I actually don't have
3: breast cancer history in my uh, family but have three generations of uterine cancer um, in, in my family. And so combining that with my uh, own breast cancer and being diagnosed in both breasts over time, actually if we had had breast MRI. 22 years ago, they would have seen that both breasts already had cancer in them um, and not just, the, not just the one. But what I began giving thought to uh, and asking questions about and going on PubMed and looking to see what I can learn uh, myself as well as uh, visiting our own research labs here to find out what are you learning when you're looking under the microscope because we were doing a lot of genetic analysis uh, back then and still are was that all of the cancers in my family were hormone-driven cancers. So, uterine, 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 breast, breast, thyroid, prostate, prostate, prostate. Um, And I thought that's not a coincidence. That sounds like something that is uh, uh, genetically happening uh, to our family and that it just isn't a coincidence. What I did not anticipate, um, and I probably should have, but I nonetheless did not, is that as more time would pass and more research would be done, that there would be discoveries of there being many more genes than the original BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, I thought, well, they figured out two of them. that probably is the only two, and, and there we are. Um, but as I, as I mentioned, the, uh, the genetics team here, when I met with them and they took a look at my pedigree and said, ooh, you probably have a gene. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? I've, you know, I've, you just tested me for BRCA1, BRCA2, and also Cowden's, which links together a breast, thyroid, and uterine. Um, and they said, just look at three generations, all hormonally driven um, so we do need to look at genetics. And I think that we're having a better understanding today in 2014 it's going to be 2015 than we ever have before in realizing that our genes are the drivers of many of the diseases, disorders, and illnesses that we end up getting uh, sooner versus later. And now we need to decipher how to help turn receptors off that are associated with that genetic predisposition so that we have the power to prevent uh, cancers from occurring to people who do have a a genetic predisposition to having them happen. Mm
2: -hmm. And so, so talk a little bit about how the science has changed. I mean, even just the you know, the the diagnosis. And we we know that there are more genes than just the BRCA genes now. Yes. Um, so what has really changed in the last, and, and, and what is that time frame? When, when has this really started to explode? Yeah,
3: I think that for decades, actually for more than a century, we've been using the poison-slash-burn method of treating cancers because that's the only way that we knew how to do it. And scientists have become far more sophisticated in looking at, biomarkers and genomes, and understanding that cancer isn't one thing, and even breast cancer isn't one thing, Uh, uterine cancer isn't one thing, even lung, ovarian, prostate, etc., that within that type of organ site cancer or blood cancer, there are a myriad of subsets of this disease, and that's... A primary reason why it has now been understood to be very difficult to find the solution in treating it and or ideally preventing it, that cancers are very clever cells. They know how to chameleon themselves into something else. Uh, Once we have one drug that can kill them, they figure out, "Mm, I think I'm going to change my... Uh, my consistency and the characteristics of me so that that drug can't do me any more harm and they'll have to figure out another way to deal with me. So we even know that uh, today when cancer spreads from its original organ site onto other organ sites, it has the ability to change its prognostic factors. So, for example, if uh, uh, for a woman with breast cancer, if her breast cancer was estrogen receptor positive, when it travels and lands in her bones or liver or lungs, it could become estrogen receptor negative, uh, Mm -hmm. resulting her not being a candidate to benefit from hormonal therapy, um, which is uh, a huge, huge, significant uh, problem uh, in that... We can usually utilize hormonal therapy for women with metastatic breast cancer for 8 to 10, 12, even 15 years. If it's hormone receptor negative, now we're stuck with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to have, to live in harmony with the disease becomes far more difficult. Longevity is directly impacted. HER2, we've also seen change from being HER2 negative to HER2 positive or vice versa. So... As I say, what we thought it was originally, it has the ability to um, morph into a different type of uh, of, of organ site cancer, and we're forever trying to chase to get in front of the train. Today, at long last, we've begun looking at ways in which we can biologically treat the disease. So rather than trying to cut it out, rather than trying to poison it, rather than trying to burn it away, we could say, you know, if we can develop these drugs that um, improve the immune system and also have the ability to take those receptors that allow the cancer cells to flourish and turn the receptor messages off, that, uh, that to me is very exciting, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and it is the wave of, of the future. Uh, where some of the challenges with this are going to be is that the types of the, the the medicines, if you will, that will be designed and have begun to be designed to treat cancers in this way are incredibly expensive.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So we're not talking about $500 a dose. We're talking about $50,000 a dose. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, huge financial hardship for a patient and their family uh, who does not have uh, a savings account that can be tapped into to absorb these very large deductibles and co-payments.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a really big worry from a health economics perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: how can we help overcome that so that people can get the treatment that they need without having to file bankruptcy?
2: Sure. No, absolutely. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and this episode is sponsored in part by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. And we just have to take another quick break, but please stay tuned, and we'll be back with more from Lily Shockney and Annie Parker right after this break. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
4: Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, and over Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Or call 617-733-5848.
1: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. Or visit us online at www.CancerSupportCommunity.org. That's CancerSupportCommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: This is Linda House, Executive Vice President of External Affairs at the Cancer Support Community, and I'm sitting in today for Kim Tebeldo who is out. We are talking today with Annie Parker and Lily Shockney, two extraordinary women who have helped really make a difference in the lives of people who are impacted by cancer. And Annie, you told us earlier the story about your life. And that story was turned into a movie called Decoding Annie Parker. And you've just recently released your book called Annie Parker Decoded. So can you just tell us a little bit about both of those pieces, how they might how they might differ? And, you know, why and what was it like for you to tell your story in such a very public way?
0: Well, I had to do a lot of soul searching because, uh, you know, a girl from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I get a call from a, a producer in Hollywood saying that he would like to do a, a feature film about my life. It was it was pretty surreal, and uh, <clears throat> I do see a lot of movies, but I really don't know a lot about making movies. But I also felt that there was a great value in my story, and that my story was not just my story. It had to be so many other other people's story, too. So I had a long discussion with my family, and um, I just thought, okay, can can we move forward with this and and do this in a professional way? And of course, Hollywood does take some liberties, but I have to tell you, the producer and everybody involved with making the film was uh, very gracious to me, and and made sure that every that everything that they were doing and every changes that they were making were were good and uh, that I was okay with what they were doing. So they always kept me in the loop. I didn't go out for any screenings at the time, um, but again, they stayed in touch with me. The The actual book, Annie Parker Decoded, comes from my heart, and I actually wanted to um, have a book out before I even had the movie out. And unfortunately, the manuscript that I wrote in initially uh, wasn't published, but it also gave the director enough uh, information, it was more like a diary I guess, but gave him enough information to put together Decoding Annie Parker. And uh, once the film came out, like you said Linda in 2013 and we're waiting for a release here in Canada which will hopefully be by the end of the year and it also just got released in Australia and New Zealand because we were getting a lot of distribution of the film, uh, I thought I should go back and readdress this book so that that 's exactly what I did. Um, it is written from the heart, and it is my wish and my hope that this this book will will get into general practitioners' offices, and that anybody that fe- feels that they have a history of a hereditary breast cancer um, might be handed this book to say by their doctor to say you need to read this woman's story. Because I don't want one other woman to have to suffer the way I suffered and have to go through the research. And I understand this was many years ago, um, but I still think there's a long way to go in in knowledge and people being aware uh, of hereditary breast cancer. And I think Lily mentioned that too, of doing a, even just doing a family pedigree is so helpful.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and as somebody who has both read the book and seen the movie, <clears throat> they're both very well done and I think um, really informative for people. So thank you for taking that leap of faith and uh, oh, giving that you gift to them. So. Thank you Um so. Thank you. Lily, so... Can you talk a little bit about how your family's journey impacted your career as a healthcare professional?
3: Uh, Yes. Um, I have known that I wanted to be a nurse, and and ironically enough, I think I must have known even an oncology nurse since the age of four. Uh, My mother, I remember, had gotten me from a Sears Roebuck catalog, a nurse's, costume for children to wear and I think I lived in it till I busted out of it. Um, mm-hmm. She has a photograph of, of me that actually was used by Johnson & Johnson when I became their most amazing nurse in America, which is a scary title to think I was going to wear. Um, where I'm holding my baby doll at the age of four, I looked very serious and I had operated on my baby doll's brain um, taking scissors and cutting its head open and putting something in it I guess to make it feel better and then wrapping bandages all all over its head and ironically enough my initial area of of specialty here at Johns Hopkins uh, when I came here 32 years ago was glioblastoma patients Um, so I I went from brain cancer to breast when I ended up diagnosed um, by myself I have always felt uh, very uh, passionate about oncology nursing and oncology nurse navigation. Uh, whenever any of my family members uh, ended up diagnosed with cancer, I was the one that they would call and would be there to help in taking care of them and making decisions and planning end of life uh, for for many of them as well, uh, particularly for my dad, who I wanted to make sure I orchestrated a, a good death uh, for him. I have uh, been really very fortunate in this role that I have here at uh, Johns Hopkins and having uh, published a lot uh, that uh, I've been able to educate patients one-on-one regarding uh, breast cancer diagnoses and treatment and individually support patients from a emotional perspective uh, when they're newly diagnosed, no matter what their stage of disease. But I've also been fortunate in getting nearly 300 peer review articles published on various subjects associated with uh, uh, cancer care, um, particularly patient advocacy and the importance of empowering patients with information so they can participate in the decision-making about their care. I did do one um, book, Uh, that uh, is my life story with this disease and how I made decisions and how some decisions, when you don't have the opportunity to make them, then you learn to live with them and try to find the humor within them. Um, And that book's called Stealing Second Base. I wrote that after my uh, reconstruction um, was done. I have written numerous textbooks uh, in the hopes that it will help improve oncology patient care. Some of them are physicians, some of them are for NPs, others are for nurses, and one in particular is for nurse navigators. The uh, the one that I've very recently finished and has just uh, hit bookstores is called Fulfilling Hope, Supporting the Needs of Patients with Advanced Cancers. And I feel strongly that Um, Clinicians don't do a good job of finding out from the patient what are they expecting, what are they hoping for, how can we have them be optimistic for as long as it's realistic and then uh, orchestrate a good death if they have advanced disease and that that is going to be the outcome. Um, Treatment for treatment's sake is bad treatment, and today still... Uh, physicians in medical school are taught to treat the disease and not look at the patient as a whole and say, I think I better be asking questions um, of the patient as to, you know, what are they hoping for, what are they most worried about, what's important to them and what brings them joy, and making sure that their personal goals dovetail with the treatment goals because if they don't, we're doing the wrong thing. Mm Mm-hmm
2: and And Lily, I know that you've had impact you know beyond sort of that early phase of diagnosis too, when you've you know shared some of the work that you've done around your survivorship retreats and your family and caregiver retreats, which are really remarkable. so i my hat's off to you for all of all of that amazing body of work. Well, thank you. Annie, um, I know that you, in addition to the movie and to the book that you've spent a significant period of time. Um, making personal appearances and writing articles and doing other things, um, to help really ways, raise the awareness around, um, genetic cancers and, and, and how to take next steps around that. So, you know, talk, talk about what this has meant to you as a person to be able to do this and what impact that you, you may have seen from your work.
0: Well, my work has been very important to me. Um, I also work a full time job here in Toronto, and um, as much as I love my job, uh, traveling with decoding Annie Parker and promoting the book has has become my passion job. So it's extremely important. I realize and feel that I'm I'm really blessed to be this one voice for so many people. And, and I also realize I'm not a prominent person like Angelina Jolie who, who came out and, and gave her story to the world too. But um, I've led this incredible cancer journey and I have served. Surf- Survived like so many other people, and I have to tell you it, you know it's been worth its weight in gold to to travel with decoding Annie Parker and do q and a s um, at the end of each session and um, and and just in traveling around the country and having people come up to me after doing the q and a and personally shaking my hand with tears in their eyes. And, and asking me to autograph their BRCA gene mutation results. And um, I, I just, I'm actually very speechless because I just found this whole experience to be so wonderful, and um, I've been so blessed, and everybody has just been so wonderful to me uh, with wanting to hear about my story, and I don't think I realize the impact that I am making on people, uh, even through organizations, Linda, like yours, and, and you did a screening of Decoding Annie Parker, and uh, I have met so many wonderful people through this whole journey. I have absolutely no regrets, and I'm just hoping I can help one person through their cancer journey with this book and, and movie. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I am certain that you have definitely helped more than than one person uh, through through this journey. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. We'll be back with our final segment right after this break. Please stay with us.
1: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides,
2: President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company AZI are committed to human healthcare, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
4: Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you of Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We are nearing the end of our show today, and we were so lucky to be visited by Annie Parker and Lily Shockney, who have been spending time talking with us about genetic cancers, advances in the current science, resources that that may be available to patients, and helping us just raise awareness of the importance of early detection prevention, being empowered um, participants and then also doing some work to help make sure that that treatments and um, diagnostics are uh, accessible and affordable and so I appreciate Lily you raising that with us um, earlier as well um, I wanted to end our time today by talking about um, support and resources and Annie I'm going to first just quickly start with you so you have your book it's available and um, I'd like for you to just first tell our listeners where they can find the book, how they can get a hold of a copy of it, and then also if you would follow up by just saying if, if, if there was just one part of the book that you would like for our listeners to read um, or reference, which, which part would that be?
0: Uh, to answer your first question, um, I believe Barnes & Noble will be carrying the book shortly. I don't think it's in the bookstore right now, but there is a website, which is Annie Parker com, So you can order the book online by going to AnnieParkerBook.com. Um, your second question, Linda, I, I've done some soul-searching, and, and I, when you ask this question, and, and it's very difficult to answer, I, I think uh, Annie Parker Decoded invites readers to learn a lot about survival, um, passion, and somewhat some desperation, and and I think I've sort of threaded that or, or woven that through through the whole book. Um, if I had to actually pick one area where there might have been some desperation and and this again goes back a few years, is that uh, there was no areas or no groups that I could actually go to for support, or there was no groups that my husband could go to for support when I was being obsessed with trying to find out about my cancer. So, um, you know, as I said, it's tough to pick out one chapter or one area, but I do know that when I reached out and was looking to reach out of my marriage, to find somebody that I could, um, a total stranger that wasn't really involved with my cancer. So it would be a refreshing look at my life to not talk about cancer and just be a woman. Um, that was the area in the book. And again, that's because there wasn't cancer support community, Gilda's House, there wasn't anywhere to go. So um, for me, the, the toughest part to, to write in the book was, um, I think, showing readers how desperate I got and wanting to end my marriage and reach out in a romantic way to somebody that I had just met who wouldn't judge me um, for just having one breast um, yeah, so I guess that's the part in the book that uh, would be the most beneficial, or was the most beneficial for me to write and actually put pen to paper. hmm
2: mm-hmm. Well, and I, and again, having seen the the video and read the book, it is just um, it's striking. Just the human impact of your experience um, is really is really powerful. Um, Lily, I want to swing to you, and you mentioned that I know. Well, I, you mentioned it, but I know also that you have a incredible body of work, several, several books, and in particular, you mentioned one called Stealing Second Base, which is your story, and I'm just wondering if you could start by um, telling our listeners where they would have access to that book.
3: Sure. Thank you. Um, all of the books actually are on Amazon.com, and the Stealing Second Base is my uh, journeys, uh, multiple journeys with breast cancer, beginning back when I was 12 and my mother's best friend was diagnosed and how uh, witnessing her dealing with metastatic disease uh, and maintaining her, all of her activities, uh, continuing to go to work at a time that 50 years ago we had really very poor treatment uh, to offer and she told me, she said, I'm going to be optimistic for as long as it's realistic. I'm going to find something to laugh about every day because I think it will help rebuild my immune system. and she was 35 years ahead of research that's been proven she was correct. I then talk about, as a student nurse, what it was like taking care of women that had the old Halstead radical mastectomy, which, thank heavens, we don't do anymore, and then ending up diagnosed um, myself and my use of humor through uh, the various episodes of, of diagnoses and treatment uh, that, that I have experienced. There are also other... Um, books on there, such as 100 Questions and Answers for Patients with Metastatic Breast Cancer. I, I took all of the questions that get emailed to me, and I get 200 about 200 a day from wow. women out there somewhere that are dealing with breast cancer, mm-hmm. and um, analyzed them uh, aggregately to see what are the most common questions that end up being asked, and i put them in ranking order and answer them. Uh, in print uh, for that that particular book. And then this most recent one that came out about five weeks ago is a textbook for oncologists, but I have been hearing that families have been also purchasing it. But it is designed to help oncologists focus on what is it that the patient needs and wants from us, how can we improve our communication skills to uh, better care for patients with advanced disease and stop just treating their pathology because the patient is more than their pathology. Mm-hmm.
2: So true. So it looks as if both of the books, so it looks like, Lily, your your suite of, of, of works, they're available on Amazon.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Annie, it also looks like yours is available on Amazon now. I, 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 I went there. Yes, there, I believe it is. There, it will be shortly. Yep. And then um, annieparkerbook.com. Um, right, I'm give and I, each I just ab- wanted to say too,
0: sorry, Linda, that I forgot to mention that um, Dr. King was very, very gracious with her time. She's a very busy lady, but she also wrote the foreword for uh, Annie Parker Dakota, which I was very elated to find out she would help me with this book.
2: Nice, very nice, yeah. um, Annie. I'm gonna I'm gonna give both of you the last word. I'm gonna start with you. Annie, okay. if there um, is anything else that you would like for our listeners to take away from this show today, what, what would that be?
0: That would be that I think I realize, and Lily touched on this too, that I believe that genetic testing is probably not for everybody. But it, but it is my wish and my advice that at least start the dialogue, that women should be starting the dialogue at their GP level. And, um, you know, I find that this is where something fell through the cracks for me and that even at general practitioners' end, that if, if you have a strong family history, that even if they track your pedigree and keep it on file, um, and start to connect the dots that this is very important. So for me, I think the final word for me is start the dialogue. Start talking about the number of people in your family that have suffered from, from cancer. It doesn't necessarily just have to be breast cancer, but in women and in my family, it was breast to ovarian. So I, I think that's very important. Great.
2: Thank you. Lily, the same question for you. What would you have people walk away with remembering today?
0: Yes, that
3: oftentimes as we have our families scattered across the nation and around the world, um, families are not keeping up to date with the medical history of their prior generations. So what did Uncle Joe die of? Nobody knows. Somebody knows, and that needs to be written down
4: Mm -hmm. so that
3: uh, everyone does have an accurate depiction of their pedigree uh, because one in two men and one in three women will be diagnosed with a life-threatening cancer in their lifetime. So we, we all need to have that type of uh, family history information. The other is that when someone is going through cancer treatment, perhaps they don't have uh, uh, the various risk factors that would point in the direction of them potentially having a gene. But after their treatment is done and a few years pass and a few more family members end up diagnosed with the same kind of cancers, et cetera, now they may fit the profile for uh, a strong recommendation to get genetic counseling and testing. The only way that is going to end up being brought up is to uh, make sure that our uh, primary care physicians are aware of our new added um, family history when we see our doctor annually or semi-annually.
2: Great. Great advice from both of you. Thank you to Annie Parker and to Lily Shockney for joining us today to talk about the link between cancer and genetics and for sharing your own experiences um, with us. Please, listeners, do not forget to check out um, Annie's book, Annie Parker Decoded, and also Lily's book, Stealing Second Base, for more information about, uh, about their stories. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. This has been Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda House. I'm filling in for Kim Thiebeldo, who is the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. If you have an idea for an episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we invite all of our listeners to share with us any topics you would like to hear more about in one of our upcoming shows. Please send your ideas to us at news at org. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where you can find a location near you. Or you are most welcome to call our toll-free helpline at 1-888-793-9355 to speak with a a licensed mental health professional and remember that all of these services are provided at no charge to the patient or your family until next time be well do well live well